Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing of the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not on your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but, hum- but emptied himself, making, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Emily and Katie and Nate, for the incredible music this morning. And thank you always to Kathy and Bonnie and David for keeping our music at such a high level through these challenging and and difficult times. Again, thank you all for being here today. We continue a series I began a couple of weeks ago, a camp meeting kind of summertime series based on the stanzas or some of the stanzas of the Wesley hymn, O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. Some folks have said it's the national anthem of Methodism and of all Wesleyan tradition churches. We started with O Four Thousand Tongues, the first stanzas, and talked about how important it is to sing God's praises and how if we each had a thousand tongues, that would not be enough to sing the praises of our great and wonderful God. And then last week we talked about My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim how if we are going to share the good news of Jesus Christ, we need assistance. We need encouragement, support from one another, and we need the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. And this week, we begin with the third stanza, Jesus, the name that charms our fears. Let's go back and think about camp meeting and revival for just a moment. Some folks associate the words with fear and trembling, hellfire and brimstone kind of images dance around in their minds, and they would be hard-pressed to define the gospel as good news. And many of these fears were ignited in folks in their lives and their childhood years. And as adults, they chose to have little or no coming together with those kind of settings. They're just bad memories of hearing what was supposed to be good news, but came across as frightening and terrifying so often. I don't know how many folks have told me across the years. It's been a little while, but I've heard it a lot. Preacher, I'll do anything you need me to do to help out, but don't look for me in church on Sunday. And I always ask why is that. I'm, I'm always curious. And I often get the response, well, I grew up in such and such a church. And every Sunday, they tried to see how bad they could frighten me. 
And I vowed and declared that when I was old enough to make up my own mind and do my own thing, I wasn't going back. Some of these persons come around and come back. Some of them can be loved back into the church. And some never come back. Never, never, ever. This kind of fire and brimstone preaching, some have called it fear mongering, has been around for a long time. Its primary role model in the New Testament, or so it seems to me, is not Jesus the Christ, but John the Baptizer, who came across as very harsh and and very scary sometimes. It's a primary role model, John, and we need to be careful about that. On July the 8th, 1741, just a, a few days ago, such a sermon was preached at Enfield, Connecticut, and it was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And maybe you've heard of that, and maybe you've heard of the preacher. And I want to say a word or two about him, and then maybe some actual words from that sermon, just for a little bit. That's not the main place we're going today. But Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He was the only son of a pastor. He grew up in East Windsor, Connecticut, and in 1716, he entered Yale College shortly before his 13th birthday. I know things were different back then, but this must have been a really incredibly bright young man. He received his bachelor's degree in 1720 and his master's in 1723. And for six months, beginning in 1722, John Edwards was assigned as the pastor of a Scotch Presbyterian church in uh, in Connecticut. He married Sarah in 1728. They were married for 30 years and they had 12 children. That's pretty scary. From 1735 through 1737, there was a revival kind of movement in his church. He was a powerful preacher. And later he became, in 1757, he was the president of the College of New Jersey. And that college is now known as Princeton University. So he was a bright man, a scholarly man. And the town was in the throes of an epidemic. Imagine that. And he died in 1758 from a secondary infection. Many scholars claim that the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was not a typical sermon for Jonathan Edwards. And he gets labeled that way sometimes. His preaching and his teaching and his writing. But folks who remember him, if they remember him at all, often remember that one sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And for this particular message, he read a passage, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. Not one that most of us can recite without looking it up. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip because the day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom will come swiftly. It's also worth noting that this sermon was not preached in Jonathan Edwards' home church. He was a visiting preacher when he preached the sermon in another church. And I've thought often since reading that, look back over the years, how a visiting pastor or a visiting evangelist can sometimes get away with things that the local pastor cannot And that some visiting evangelists kind of come in, they do a hit and run sort of thing, and then they're out of town, and so they don't have to stay and face the consequences. But anyway, let's a few words now from that sermon. He said, the use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. 
This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended broad under you. There's the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There's hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There's nothing between you and hell but the air. It's only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. And then he said, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It's a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hands of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of wrath underneath. And every moment it's ready to break and to send you and to burn it asunder. I'm grateful that I was raised up in a faith tradition that rarely expressed to me this kind of what seems to me to be bombastic and manipulative preaching. Oh, a touch of it now and then. Condemnation light might be one way to think of it. But a steady diet of such harsh and legalistic banner would have probably caused me to push back from the table of God and to put my feet on a road too often traveled, a wrong and winding road that leads not to heaven's door, but away from the people of God and away from God's church and the encouragement and the strength and the hope that we find when the church is on its best behavior and doing what God has called us to do and we're building people up and not tearing folks down. A faith tradition where the name of Jesus does not strike fear in our hearts, but where the name of Jesus charms our fears and bids our sorrow cease. This music in the sinner's ear is life and health and peace. The scripture lesson for this morning that Emily read, and, and thank you for that, I hope you followed along from Philippians, and that's my favorite of Paul's letters. There's so much encouragement in there. There's so much hope. There's so many wonderful promises in the book of Philippians. And I go there sometimes when I'm discouraged. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, not because we're afraid of the consequences of what will happen if we don't bow, but because we are so overwhelmed by the amazing love of God who would go to any extreme to redeem us from the pit, so to speak, from the real hell of hell, which is separation from God. Jesus, 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 sweetest name we know, music, not a funeral march, not a dirge, but a resurrection song, music in the sinner's ear, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we've got to be so careful about that, that verse God drives it, brings it back to me so many times. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and sometimes I just have to ask, what part of all don't we understand? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And it's music in our ears. The good news of Jesus Christ, it's life and health and peace for us so that we might be peaceable and peaceful with others. Jesus, 
Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. The name that charms our fears. That bids our sorrows cease. The name that charms our fears. And for some reason, this is where my mind went with that. Is that all of us, I bet all of us, and if we had time, we could go around the room this morning. We all have a snake story. Don't, don't you have a snake story? Maybe it's a snake in the sleeping bag. Or a snake in the car. Or a snake got in your house. Or a snake in the sock drawer somewhere between the gold toes and the knee-high argyles. There are just snakes all over the place. And there's a universal fear of snakes. And I find myself a citizen of that universe. When I hear Charles Wesley's expression, charms our fears. I think about the old cartoons and some of the old movies. With somebody kneeling beside a clay jar or some kind of object. And playing some flute-like instrument. Charming the snakes, a snake charmer, and some docile or cartoonish like demon comes floating up out of the out of the jar or the container. But there's no abracadabra. There's no hocus pocus in the name of Jesus. Our fears are charmed, and that means they're made docile and they're defined and they're made harmless, not by magic, but by the name of the majestic one. For a moment or two now, I want us to consider a few of those fears that have harmed. Fears that for many of us need to be charmed. There's the ever-present fear of failure. How much good goes undone in this world every day because we are afraid our efforts might come up short. Mahatma Gandhi once said the difference between what we do And what we are capable of doing would suffice to solve most of the world's problems. Why is there a gap? Why is there a difference? Allow me to suggest that one of the many reasons is we're afraid if we try it, we'll fail. And it's a real fear. When fear of failure keeps us from doing anything at all, that is the greatest fear, the greatest failure of all. Someone much wiser than me, and that's quite a long list. Once said, failure is not failure, except when you fail to learn from it. How much harm has been done to us individually and our families and as the church by this fear? Frederick Wilson says that progress always involves risk. You cannot steal second base and keep one foot on first base. Jesus told a little story about the fear of failure. I want to read it to you out of uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. It's in Matthew 25 and it begins with verse 14. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson was able to to spin a story in a way that makes it so understandable. Jesus said, It's also like a man going off on an extended trip. He called his servants together and delegated responsibilities. To one he gave $5,000, to another $2,000, to a third $1,000, depending on their abilities. Then he left. Right off, the first servant went to work and doubled his master's investment. The second did the same, but the man with the single thousand dug a hole and carefully buried his master's money. After a long absence, the master of those three servants came back and settled up with them. The one given $5,000 showed him how he had doubled his investment. His master commended him, good work. 
You did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant with the 2,000 showed how he had also doubled his master's investment. His master commended him, good work, you did your job well. From now on, be my partner. The servant given 1,000 said, Master, I know you have high standards and you hate careless ways, that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you, so I found a good hiding place and secured your money. Here it is, safe and sound down to the last cent. The master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Take the thousand and give it to the one who risks the most. And get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. Thomas Edison said if we did all the things we are capable of doing, we would literally astonish ourselves. Is the fear of failure one of our major roadblocks? Is that one of the fears that in our lives Jesus needs to charm? And then there is the naggingly persistent fear of insufficiency. Not enough stuff? What if the barrel runs dry? What if we come up empty? It's a fear that we personally and together sometimes as God's people in God's church we wrestle with that. And sometimes we do much harm because we're so afraid that we won't have the resources, we won't have the strength, we won't have the power to get it done. So we've been harmed by a fear that can be charmed by the name of Jesus and that will release the creative and the redemptive and the sustaining power of God in our lives if we're not so afraid. In the cycle of Elijah stories, there's a story about the barrel that is about empty and the way God and the widow and her son and the barrel is refilled and never runs out. It's in 1 Kings 17. We won't read it today, but read it sometimes and think about God's sufficiency and how God will not leave us high and dry. That if we trust God as God's people, we'll have what we need to do God's work. And then there's that little story. It's the only miracle story, I believe, that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. The story of the loaves and the fishes. It's one that you, or fish, um, fishes, they're not, it's fish, just fish. And he fed 5,000 hungry folks. He blessed, broke, and distributed this, gathered the leftovers, and charmed the fear of those who had been harmed because they thought there wouldn't be enough. Jesus has all kinds of ways to charm our fears. And then let me mention one more. There are many, many. We could, again, have a sharing session and, and make a list of our fears, but one from which one of us can, no one of us can run long enough or hard enough or fast enough is the fear of death. And when the Bible speaks of the fear of death, not only our individual deaths that are coming our way someday, but a death as a force and a power, a force of evil, a power that Jesus came to oppose, not just individually, but a force that loose in the world, a power of death that shuts some folks down and harms others and infects us and infests us if we're not careful. 
But we all must face that individual fear of death. Dr. Kubler-Ross, who did so many studies several years ago with this and, and wrote some great books, she was lecturing one day and she asked her students, why is death so frightening? And several of them had the same answer. And they raised their hands and they said, fear the unknown. She said, no, 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 that's not it. If we were afraid of the unknown, we would never get married. She said our fear of death is that there is a force out there that one day is going to overwhelm all of us and there's not a thing we can do to stop it. Overwhelming, unavoidable force and in many ways we're defenseless. I don't know if she was a person of faith. I hope so. As persons of faith, or as persons who are struggling some days to be persons of faith. How about this fear of death? Is it one that Jesus has charmed or is charming in our life? Maybe a point of struggle for us has to do with the credentials that we need to take on this fiercest of foes, this fiercest of fears. Is Jesus credentialed to charm the adversary of death. And a portion of our scripture lesson for today that was read earlier, the Christian hymn, there's an ancient Christian hymn that Paul embodies in that passage of scripture. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that in the name of Jesus... Every knee should bend. Everything that has breath, all the principalities and all the powers of darkness in this world, and they are many, charmed, prohibited from doing any permanent harm by the one who was, and the one who is, and the one who is to come. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And if not completely gone, then it becomes nothing more than a toothless, spindly, tail-tucked, weak-spirited shadow of its former self. Death. Death. Jesus has been there and back. Jesus has done that. And Jesus has not the t-shirt, but the scars to prove it. Matthew 28, you may remember this. It's a sort of an Easter story, but we're sort of an Easter people, aren't we? Matthew 28, the angel spoke to the women, there's nothing to fear here. I know you're looking for Jesus. The one they nailed to the cross, he's not here. He was raised. Sometime on that Friday, a long, long time ago, Jesus was introduced to death. And death was an arrogant sort. Early on the following Sunday morning, death hung its head and uttered a less than enthusiastic one-word response. Charmed. Jesus, the name that charms our fears.